fellow griever. You have found the Leftover Pieces Suicide Lost Conversations podcast, and I am Alyssa, your host. I am with you on this journey because my 21-year-old son, Alex, died by suicide on August 7th of 2016. Since launching this podcast in late 2020, I have followed my heart and expanded the leftover pieces to include books and an online community where I host Zoom support groups every week. It is there in this community that I lead other parents who have lost a child by suicide from survival toward hope and into healing. The website is also a resource hub, a connecting point for all survivors of suicide loss. You can find me, ways to connect with me, and links to everything that I'm doing in the community on my website, theleftoverpieces.com. Know that I'm always open to suggestions and feedback. And if you know someone that I should connect with to be on the podcast, please let me know that as well. So now I invite you to join me for real conversations, handed talk on hard topics surrounding the loss of our loved ones by suicide. I talk to other lost survivors, mental health experts, advocates, and on alternate weeks, I offer shorter solo episodes where I go down the rabbit hole to discuss things that have been on my mind or possibly parts of my journey that I feel would be beneficial to share. Every week, we explore the questions that haunt us, seek the courage to uncover the healing tools within us, and offer the comfort of a community that we all need so very much. It's true that our hearts and lives have been shattered, but come along with me and together Let's choose to find meaning and even happiness amid the leftover pieces before us. Welcome. Hello, fellow griever, and welcome to season four, episode 37 of the Leftover Pieces Suicide Loss Conversations podcast. I am Melissa, your host. Today, I'm sharing with you a conversation I had recently with Jill Cowan. Jill is the co-creator and president of an organization or a program, if it might be the better way to say it, called Healing to the Max. Jill is a fellow survivor parent, having lost her beloved son, Maximilian, who went by Max, in March of 2015. Max was just 16 years old at the time. I'm going to read a little bit about Max straight from her website. Max was only 16 years old. He was a student in grade 10 at Centennial School in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. He was a great kid. He had lots of friends, a girlfriend, a part-time job, was first string player on the football team, and even participated in soccer academy. So when Max approached us and told us he was struggling with depression, my husband and I did everything we could to try to help him, including consultations with our family doctor and getting Max on a lengthy list to see a psychiatrist. 
but when the time on the waiting list was over, it was already too late. There were times where Max seemed to be doing better, even enjoying our fun family getaway to Cuba and applying to study abroad. Max's suicide seemed unplanned, like the rug just got pulled out from under his feet. Even though we knew he had been struggling, we were always hopeful he would get better. So losing him was not only heartbreaking, but also incredibly traumatic. We miss him deeply. Healing to the Max is a program that she co-created in 2019, four years after the loss of Max. Healing to the Max is a compassionate community of support. It's a therapeutic, intensive program. It's designed to pick up where most of us are left off with, which is with not adequate counseling or therapeutic services offered to us by either our government healthcare systems or our own private ones. In our conversation that I'm going to share with you today, we talk about how so many kids go so quickly from the time they first start struggling to the time that they are gone. For her, Max first talked about his struggles in October of 2014, and by December, she felt that they were really in a war on his depression. She and her husband were actively involved in getting Max all the help that they could. You'll hear her discuss that they tackled this as serious right from the beginning, and Max knew he wasn't alone. Max was the kind of kid, much like I think of my son Alex, who was just there all the time for people. He had a plan for his future. He had a life ahead of him. Um, Many of his neighbors called him 1-800-DIAL-A-MAX because if you needed something, Max was always there to help or lend a hand. In the wake of Max's loss and developing the program they have, which is a narrative program, you will hear her talk about their approach and how it's different. She discusses her other two kids, and we discuss how to deal with this grief in general, among many, many other things. I often say, you don't get over this. You learn to live successfully alongside of your grief. Very similarly, Jill says, you learn to live with grief and joy hand in hand. I thoroughly enjoyed my conversation with Jill I took a lot from it, and I think you will also. So without further ado, let's get started and welcome Jill. Hi, welcome to the podcast, Jill. It is my honor to have you on. How are you doing? Oh, thank you so much, Melissa. I'm doing just fine. Thank you. What an honor it is for myself. I've been watching your work online and waiting for the day that this day would come where we could meet and sit down and have a meaningful conversation. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. Me too. I too have been waiting and I always just think that things will happen in the right time. And I think we both think that this is the right time because I too have been admiring you as we run into adjacent circles online and things. And I'm just really glad that the timing is right. So I'm going to start the way I start all of these conversations, Jill, and ask you to share your lost story, whatever that means to you. 
So in early March of 2015, I lost my son, Max, by suicide. And Max was 16 years old. And we're from Canada. And he was in his grade 10 high school year. I don't know what you call that in America. Is that a freshman or? Sophomore. Sophomore. So he would have been just a sophomore. Right. Because freshman's your first year in high school. Nine. So, yep. So you're a freshman and then a sophomore and then a senior? Nope. Then a junior, no. then a senior. A junior, then a senior. So it's four years in high school. Is that and right? Though, yep, it is. And those are the same names that we put to it on the collegiate level, too, with a four-year degree. It's the same oh, thing. Well, that makes sense. That is very smooth and cohesive. <laughs> it's completely different, even though we are in North America. And of course, our cultures are very adjacent to one another. That's a little bit different. So Max was a sophomore here in Canada, and he was just your typical 16-year-old boy. He had a steady girlfriend. He had a part-time job. He had a really close-knit group of friends that he had from early childhood. And he had decided to choose a high school that aligned with what he was hopeful to do post-secondary. So I don't know if it's like that in the States, but you can choose your high school here. It doesn't necessarily have to be in the catchment area that you're living. So let's say you wanted to become a doctor, you wanted to work in medicine post-secondary, you could find the high school that sort of specializes in the maths and the sciences, and you would go there so that you could get those prerequisites for your post-secondary education. And so Max went with a school that kind of had the programming to facilitate his post-secondary hopes, which was to become an environmental scientist. He wanted to travel to underdeveloped countries and help improve their quality of life through sustainable infrastructure. And so he split from his group of friends that he had gone through all the years with, and he went to this new high school. And he was thriving by all accounts. He was happy and finding his way. He had still kept up his friendships with his old group of friends. And he had made some new friends and of course met his girlfriend there. And he was participating in all sorts of extracurriculars. And he earned a starting position on their football team. And as a running back, that's a really skilled position. And he kept up with the sports that he had done previous, but Football was a new sport to him. So we were so proud. We loved to see him sort of thrive with that new sport that he was learning. And it was always like your high schools, right? You go out and there's pep rallies. I don't know if you call them pep rallies, actually. Yes, we do. <laughs> yeah. So anyhow, we would, the cheerleaders would be out and it's like a really exciting electric environment. We were so proud of him and he seemed to just be going forward, right? He had his sort of goals post-secondary. A lot of young people don't know what they want to do. And there's the world is their oyster and they're so young and you don't want to put pressure on them to make these decisions. But Max sort of had a really clear vision of what his future looked like. And yeah, we were just really watching him blossom. And in his younger years, he was always very consistent. We have an older son, so his brother, Zach, 
And his younger sister, Neve Marie, was five years younger than him. And he's very nurturing. Like he just had all the time in the world for his brother and sister. And we just sort of saw that continue. I just felt like I could write a book on what it is like to parent a teenager. I just went, this is so easy. This is, I'm flying through this. Our first son was making his way and doing well. And then Max came along and I'm like, okay, I am just, who thinks teenagers are hard? I would like to meet these people because this is so easy. And so he just never, he never gave us any trouble at all. Our neighbors called him 1-800-DIAL-A-MAX. Like if they needed an odd job done up here in Canada, our winters are really long, especially where we live. We're really quite close to the Northern Shield, which is really close to the North Pole. Really, we're really not that far. So our winters are really harsh. And so people would just call and know that Max was going to show up and help them clear the snow. It's not an easy feat here where we live. And so we just never really had any concerns about him. So when he came to us early on, he came to myself and he said, Mom, it was really quite quickly after he started his grade 10 year. And he said, Mom, I think I'm struggling with a depression. Those were his words. He said, I think I'm struggling with a depression. And I was just completely shocked. That was the last thing I would have expected. I was really glad that he came to me and I told him that I was sorry to learn this. And I promised him that we were going to get him the best help. And I said, you're not in this alone. I said, I am going to treat this like as seriously as if I had found out you had cancer. I'm going to throw everything that I have at this. You're, you're not alone. And I told him that this wasn't his fault. This is a common thing. And just trying to not make him feel so isolated in his experience of struggling in this way. So I did tell him we're in this together. And I did ask him if he had any thoughts of hurting himself. And he was really quiet. And he had some tears like he wasn't crying, but he had some tears escaped, right? And I knew that those were thoughts that he had. So I put my hand on him and I said, I'm scared. I'm frightened. But I I again assured him that this was these were normal thoughts. But please don't act on that. If those thoughts ever come up, all he would have to do. So I made a pact with him. And again, this is all brand new information to me for all accounts. It looks like Max is going forward as a young teen does and doing well and thriving. And then he just came to me and it was after school and I was just in my bedroom and he came in and closed the door and shared this with me. So I made a pact with him and I said, if you ever have thoughts of hurting yourself, all you have to do is come and touch my arm. And I would know that's our signal. You need immediate help. We'll go to the hospital. No problem. You don't have to explain anything. You don't have to say anything. Just touch my arm and we'll go. And so he thanked me and we just sort of went forward from there. So that was about October, beginning of October of that new school year. And so 
a couple of months were going by, right? It's October, November, beginning of December, Max said, I'm struggling. Let's so we had made an appointment with our what we call our family doctor, you might call it your primary caregiver. So it was really quick after Max told us and we have a friend who's a psychiatrist here in the city we live in. And I phoned him and I said, look, Max has come to us and told us he's struggling. Who do you recommend? We want someone who's going to make the best connection with a teen boy. And so our friend gave us the name of someone. And so we went to our primary caregiver, our family doctor. Within the first couple of weeks, we had that appointment made and we went in and I said, we've been given a name and could you refer us to this doctor? And so we got that referral going and we were waiting for that appointment. And a couple months went by and Max came and he said, yeah, I'm not doing well. So we went back to the doctor was probably early December, and he was prescribed some medication, medication to help with mood. And so he, the doctor said, look, this is going to take about three weeks to take effect, just stick with it. And hopefully everything will be okay. If it's not, we can come back, there's a 100 different medications, come back, we'll just prescribe you something else, no problem. So he went on the medication and it seemed to be working. And he said, mom, it's sort of taken the edge off. And I said, okay, good. Let's just keep going with it. And again, we're still waiting for this appointment. We had planned a family trip for Christmas. We were, we bought plane tickets and booked a resort in a tropical location. And off we went on our Christmas trip with the children. And He loved that. I mean, he loved being on the beach for Christmas. There were other soccer stars from around the world, from the European Soccer League. And he, even though there was a language barrier, they all got together and they played on the beach. And he was thrilled with that. He loved meeting them. And in fact, there's one young fellow that he played with on that beach. We still keep in touch with him. He plays for a Swedish team in Europe. And so we still keep in touch with that young man, but he really enjoyed that. And so things seemed to be going okay. Christmas happened. So he told us in October, he was struggling. We tried some medication. We were checking in with our primary health provider and we go on our family trip. And we came back from that trip in early January He picked his classes for the coming year. So that would be his junior year, as you say, that was for us grade 11. So the year before graduation happens and he picks his courses and it seems like things are going all right. And in early March, we just woke up one morning and discovered that Max hadn't made it through the night. He had done something that ended his life. and. Even though we knew Max was struggling, it was still incredibly shocking. We just thought this was Max. He's going to make it. We just, I fully believe that. I just went, this is our Max, our reliable, our 1-800 dial Max. This is happening, but we're going to, we're going to beat this. And this is going to be a phase Maybe, and I was prepared to help support him throughout his life, check in with him, make sure that he was okay. 
And he had just taken his girlfriend out the night before for her 16th birthday, a special date. They went out for dinner. And they went to, I don't know if you have the, well, you would have batting cages. Like, so they went to the batting cages and they did that. And then they went to an arcade where you play games and you get tokens and things and you can cash in your tokens for rewards. And then they walked down the road and they watched a film. And Max had his appointment scheduled to get his driver's license on the Tuesday that week. So I picked up the kids at the movie theater. And we drove his girlfriend home and he walked her to the door and gave her a kiss. And she was supposed to come over for dinner that Sunday evening at our house. And it was that night. Max didn't survive that night. He was gaming online, as young people do. He was playing Call of Duty. I don't know if that's still a popular thing or not, but he was playing Call of Duty with the boy down the street, his best friend, Aiden. They were best friends since they were two years old. And they were gaming online. And he, of course, they talked through their, (laughs) right? And he said, I'm going to get a snack. And he's he said, I'm going to get a pizza pop. And they were in the middle of a game. And that was it. Instead of getting a snack, Max, he did what he did. And the very next morning, we discovered that he hadn't survived. And so it was really five months from the first time he told us that he was struggling to the moment that we lost him. And I just felt like he slipped through my fingers. That was really a devastating reality was we were just starting on this journey of getting him help. Two weeks after his funeral, two weeks to the day, I got a letter in the mail saying he had been accepted as a patient at child and youth psychiatry. And so, of course, I phoned them to get him taken off the list and said that he hadn't survived. And I just didn't want another family to have to wait. Since that time, I am doing the work that I do now. It's about a two-year waiting list for young people to get an appointment with child and youth psychiatry. So really, I mean, it was, I don't think there's any way you can prepare for this type of loss. Of course, there isn't. Even if you know your loved one's struggling, you have that hope that they're going to survive. You always have that. How can you not? Right. Yeah. Jill, thank you. For sharing that, I know that, like me, you've been on this journey just a year longer than I have. So we both have shared our story a lot, and it just never, it never falls any less on my heart when I hear the story of another parent losing their child this way. And we didn't see it coming either. And I did, I counted on my fingers after you said five months. Because I thought, oh, gosh, I think that's about where we were. Alex told us in late March, and he was gone early August. So the math is about the same as far as feeling like. And I felt like he was on an upward trajectory when he went back to college on July 29th. That year, he was getting ready to become a junior in college. So Alex was 21. And he had been struggling and told us and he wasn't at home because he was at college, but 
a very similar situation to you as far as me saying, what can we do? That summer, the place that he was working was closing for the summer. It was a small college town. And so he said, I'm going to come home for a good portion of that. So we had him for five weeks. So I had the gift of having not had him live at home for almost two years of having him at home for five weeks, which really felt good given where he was at and that he was struggling and was struggling with the counseling center, not having the appointments that he needed and things like that. And they wanted to just throw medication at him right away, but then they wouldn't make appointments. They wouldn't follow up the way he needed it. And so I was excited that he was going to come home and I could have him in front of me, Jill, kind of like where you felt like you wanted to be able to see. And I just felt like he was doing really well. And I didn't want to upset the apple cart with a bunch of mom hovering over him at 21 years old, especially. And so I made the decision to wait until the end of his visit to sit him down. And and unless I had seen something, but I didn't see anything that was alarming. I thought "Mm, he seems to be doing really well. And so when we sat down, just me and him at the, the day before he went back and I said, okay, mom's here. I need to know how you're doing, how you're really doing, because I'm getting ready to send you back to the environment that you were struggling in. And he assured me he was doing great. He would let me know if there was, if we needed to do follow-up counseling. He was talking about coming home and switching universities. We had all of these great conversations and he went back and eight days later, he was gone. And so just like you, did we know he was struggling Did we embrace whatever that meant as far as getting him help? Absolutely. And yet we lost him anyway. And yeah, I don't know how you prepare for it, right? But I also don't, I never know what to say to people as far as there's a real fine line when we are survivors of a loss like this to know how we work adjacent with prevention campaigns, right? Because it is so hard to know the rhetoric that exists in the States with the glamorous campaigns is often all suicides are preventable. hundred percent of suicides are preventable. And it's really hard for those of us that feel like we were doing and saying and acting all the right ways to say, but is it really, isn't there something else that we could do? So I think it's just a really complex problem that we all are trying to navigate. And until you, live this life until you have these experiences, you don't understand how broken the systems are. And where you have a user fee, right, you have to pay for your health care. But at least the people who have the means to pay can get the help that they need, it seems like. But even even us up here in Canada, right, we don't have that issue. Cost is not the barrier. However, a lot of us say, okay, well, if there was a fee, we would gladly pay that, right? Or maybe make it so that if you do earn a specific income, then maybe we can pay into that. Maybe that can be something that we carry for the greater good of our nation. For the people who will never have the access to that kind of care, could we then pay a fee? Could we then pay a premium, right? So let's say it's whatever it is. I'll just make up a number, $500 a year. Mm -hmm. Could we then pay into that so that there's greater access for all Canadians to access mental health? And I think the system is just so incredibly mismanaged. Mm -hmm. And I think the, the answer to how to fix it is not exactly clear to anyone, because any way you slice it, there's going to be people who aren't able to access 
those supports. In Canada, we have a smaller population, but we have a huge, vast, broad amount of land mass. So we live very remotely. Unless you're living in a major city in Canada, a lot of those people don't have access to the supports because they're completely remote. They would have to take a plane. Here where I live, it is not, in fact, my own mother suffered an unforeseen medical emergency just last month and had to take a helicopter to the hospital for a life-saving surgery. Had we not had that support available, she would not have lived. And this is the reality of where we live, that it's just such a huge, broad landmass. And how do these people get the help that they need in the timely fashion that they need it? That is an area I'm extremely interested in that our program is working towards improving. We do have something in the works right now in the realm of suicide prevention designed specifically for youth and teens to go into the school system and to empower our youth with the knowledge of how they can support themselves and or a loved one who is in struggle. And I think we sort of have to say this is the system that we have. We have to work with it, but also circumvent that by empowering our young people with the tools Uh to help themselves or help support a loved one who they know is in struggle. And it's incredibly difficult and diverse and complex. And it's not an easy nut to crack because there's a lot of stigma, as you say, around the issue of talking about suicide. A lot of people still have that hang up of if we talk about this, then our children may die in this way, which isn't true. There is very solid research that shows when things are going well, it's the perfect time to talk about the topic of suicide with young people. And so I think a lot of people sort of, we just have to crack that on the head and sort of fight that stigma and that outdated narrative that we cannot talk to our youth and teens about suicide. That isn't going to put the idea into their head. That isn't going to give them permission to die in this way. But what it will do is give them the tools that they are lacking to help support themselves through crisis Mm -hmm. or a loved one who is struggling. So this is definitely an area that I'm, I've been working on in the last eight years behind the scenes. Of course, Melissa, you'll be knowing from what I've been doing online that we are providing post-pension support to survivors of suicide loss. But that is something that is definitely coming and we're right on the cusp of helping to change this. As far as the the medical field goes, I think we've just got a really long way to go. And I think there's just, everybody wants to help. I do not believe in my heart of hearts that anybody who knew Alex or Max were struggling between the precipice of life and death, they wouldn't have stepped in and helped. A perfect stranger would have saved them had they had that opportunity to do that. So I do believe our medical professionals would have saved them had they had the opportunity. But because our system has those tedious wait lists, a lot of our deserving, our beautiful, deserving young people, whatever age they are, whatever age they are, for you and I, it's young people. 
anyone who dies by suicide, I feel dies before what is their natural time. So I often sort of think of them as young people because they've died before their natural time. And I say natural time in a physical sense, not to say that the mental anguish and disconnect that they were suffering was not affecting their physical. As a bereaved parent, I can attest to to that side of things, absolutely, affecting the physical well-being of a person. But I do think that this is an area where we all have to come together and have those difficult conversations And how can we, and I mean, politically, oh my goodness, it's such a hard thing. Everybody knows what needs doing, but who is willing to go against the established mode to affect those changes? And I think the more we come together, the more we have these types of meaningful conversations, and the more we support one another, we're going to hopefully within my lifetime, maybe I'm an eternal optimist, I would love to see some change. I had that inertia where when Max died, I don't know if you went through this, Melissa, but when Max died, I went, okay, I've paid the price. Like the world has lost this precious, capable person. And that's enough. Like, okay, the price has been paid. Now it's going to stop. Now less people, more people will know that Max died and they won't die in this horrific way. They won't die in this tragic way. They won't die in this traumatic way. And so like you, every time I meet someone else who has lost their loved one, it goes straight to my heart. It will never, ever get easier for me to meet someone because they have found my program and they too have lost a loved one in this way because I know how hard it is to survive. Yeah. And so it does go to the heart of me and it just, yeah, all those things go hand in hand. And what do we have the capability of doing as survivors, right? We've just survived and it's enough that we just had that happen. And it's enough that we have to then to learn to live with this loss. How do we then change a broken system? It's incredibly complicated And I hope that is something that's going to happen within your lifetime, Melissa, and my own. I hope for that, and I'm working towards it, and I collaborate with a really great team of people and a really diverse community within Canada. We come together, and I'm hopeful that this is something that we're going to blow the lid off very soon. We'll see how it goes. Hopefully, you'll cheer for me. From I will cheer for you. I will come alongside you in any way I can. I agree so much with what you've said as far as one let's go back to the kids the kids have the answers and the kids want to talk about these things and it really made me think about something that another mom that I spoke to said probably last season on the podcast she's an author here in the United States she writes young adult fiction and so she her market is teenagers She lost her teenage daughter who was in the LGBTQI realm and all while she was working, not only writing for children, but working to advocate for the mental health of children. She lives in a very conservative part of our country. And so she was fighting an uphill battle where many of the teens, whether they were LGBTQ or not, many of them had no place to go that felt safe. And so she was trying to help provide those spaces and yet lost her precious daughter in the midst of it. And yet she's still a powerhouse of a voice to say, 
the answers lie with the children themselves. We're trying to keep them from talking about suicide and mental health. And I don't know about you, but many of the children that die here in the States by suicide, it's still the majority, not the minority, that the death doesn't get recognized or treated well at the school level, meaning the school wants to not talk about it. They sometimes even forbid the student body from talking about it. They can forbid the teachers from speaking about suicide at all. They may not recognize them at graduation. If they do, it's very muted and understated compared to if a child died in any other way. They're very over the top and overt about memorializing, bringing counselors in, talking to the student body about the loss of their friend, except when it's by suicide. And because there is this really poorly thought about idea that, like you said, that somehow that's going to perpetuate it. So if somebody else dies, we're somehow liable and it becomes they're more worried about liability than they are about actual lives and their students and their mental health and their well-being. When the kids, like you said, it isn't that they were not planning an idea that they don't know about. They know about it. They all are walking around like you and I, nobody else can see, but the many computers that we all hold in our hands give yes. them every idea that they could possibly ever not want in their head, whether they want to have it or not. And so we're doing nothing but a disservice by not talking to them about things that they already know about. And when you talked about antiquated ideas, the very first thing that always comes to my mind is back, I'm, I may be older than you, I'm 54, but Back in the day, Melissa. Okay, (laughs) when we were in school, it was the we were just starting to get comfortable with birth control and talking about it and handing it out. And the schools were fighting the whole if we hand out birth control, we're encouraging teenage sex. When to look at that as a grown up makes us laugh hysterically because teenagers have been having sex since teenagers existed. We're not going to keep them from being sexual creatures that are curious and want to connect with each other, but to not allow them access to not be having babies as children was an idea that shouldn't have seemed far beyond its time. But when we were fighting that battle back in the day of we can't do, they were even in college, not wanting condoms handed out back then. That was only what, 30 years ago. So we always had those conversations. So if that can happen with pregnancy, if that can, and sex, and if that can happen with drinking and, and drugs, and we can, then I try to, like you, be an optimist that we can get there with empowering youth to talk about the scariest of scary so that they have a plan to deal with it when it shows up in their life. And and it does, right? I hardly have met anyone, well, in fact, I don't think I have, who has not been touched by suicide loss, whether it's someone within your community or your family, or your friend group, someone who has lost a loved one by suicide. So, I mean, it's the number one killer above car accidents, above heart disease. In Canada, where I live, right in the middle in Saskatchewan, right on the Prairie Provinces, we have the highest suicide rate in North America. And so to try to deny that this is a reality is something that's so counterintuitive to me not to be speaking about and to be shedding some light on and to give these children that empowerment, that knowledge, that permission to talk about this. This isn't something that is just you read about in the news and is never going to affect you. 
it does because it's within their school and whether or not they were friends with that child, that was their community that lost a young person. And so, or a teacher or in our community, just a couple of hours ago, we lost a police officer by suicide. Our first responders we know are very vulnerable to, to this type of struggle. So I think this is definitely something that we need to view in a different light and keep having these hard conversations and keep convincing people, as you say, with sex education, right? We need to keep talking about this so that because as the world goes, right, this is a part of our life. And how do we give our children the chance to progress forward with different options, right? Right. They yeah, are. We have to give them the tools because life is hard. Life is harder than it's ever been, Jill. I mean, we are we face stresses now that as you and I as children never would have dreamed were on the horizon, right? It's unreal. We haven't progressed. You said your husband's a scientist when we spoke before. He would, yes. I'm sure, concur with this. We have not progressed biologically, meaning our ability to handle things capably, process them as a human race. We can't keep up with the technology and the things that are coming. So as adults, we can reason through things. We can do a lot of things. Our young people that are between, let's just roughly between their preteen years and their early to mid-20s, and we look at where their brain is and all of the things, they are being overloaded with things that they don't know how to handle. They don't have the DNA to handle it. They don't have the brain isn't developed enough to know what to do. We barely know what to do with some of the things that are coming at us in our world today. I mean, adults, if you take out the youth, adults are dealing with anxiety on levels that it's unheard of. The first thing your doctor asked you when you go to the doctor now, if you're going for heart pain, is how's your stress level yep. with your happiness today? So the, on some level, they know that we're all way overstressed, but we're wanting to pretend that it's not affecting the children on the level that it is. So before we go any further down another rabbit hole, yes. but I'd like you to go back and tell me from the beginning, how did you, where did Healing to the Max come from? So after we lost Max, probably like any other family who's been affected by this traumatic loss, we just didn't even know where to start. We are so grateful and very fortunate to have two surviving children. At that time, they were 18 and our daughter was just 11 years old. And there was nothing for our surviving children. And when I mean nothing, zero. There were no grief support organizations for young people, let alone siblings. And, and I'm thinking about Max's friends as well, those young people who lost their beloved friend in this traumatic way. So we recognized that there was a gap in services for families like our own. My husband and I, again, I don't know... If it's reciprocal, right? Because we have what's called EFAP programs here through our employee services program. So my husband is a scientist, but he works for the government. And so we have a pretty good EFAP program for support. What does that stand for? What does EFAP stand for? This EFAP is just sort of your, oh God, educational, I don't even know educational family something. It's just sort of programming through whatever employer you have will provide you with a certain number of hours of counseling if you need it. They'll find 
a counselor who's aligned with that program and they'll give you, let's say, five sessions. I think for us, it was four. They gave us four counseling sessions. Which and, that was gonna, and that was going to get you all fixed up, right? That was going to get us all through the loss of the traumatic loss of our beautiful Max. It doesn't even scratch the surface, right? We had to wait two and a half months to be matched with a counselor. And we were really grateful. She was trained in loss by suicide. And we were grateful to make that connection. But those four sessions came and went. And I don't even think I remember the first two because we just sort of cried and yeah. used a whole bunch of Kleenex, right? And so we were just sharing that this is what happened and we don't know where to begin. So basically, we were given those four hours, right? Because they're hour long sessions. And we went back to, and they did give us more like, you know, his work did it, my husband's work did give us additional sessions. And we were grateful for what we got. But we're fortunate enough that we were able to pay out of pocket and then go for private counseling. And we did find that helpful. And she suggested to us that we find a group of survivors. And at that time, we were like, no way. Are you kidding me? We went, we cannot listen to other people's pain. We are barely able to breathe. How could we possibly listen to someone else's loss? And we we just went, no, I'm sorry, that's not for us. And we can we continue to do one-on-one sessions. And then she said to me, I think it's time you connect with other mother survivors. Just give it a try. And I went, I'm at the bottom of the barrel. I'm going to give it a try. So I did. And I went. And I remember going to the meeting and looking at that sign that had that word suicide, right? And I stood there for 10 minutes and I was just hot from like the roots of my hair to the tips of my toes. And I was so angry and I just went, how can this be my life? I don't fit in anywhere and I'm about to walk through the doors. And this is where I belong now with a group of strangers and I just, I mean, I had, I'm not an angry person, so I didn't, that was really unfamiliar to me. And I just stood there and I couldn't even do anything. I was like paralyzed with anger. I don't know if that's a familiar experience, but that's what I was feeling. And I did, I opened up the doors and I just put my head down and I did a little scan out of my peripheral vision and I went, okay, there's other people here. Okay, cool. I'm not going to be the only one. And I went over to a table where they had coffee and tea and some refreshments. And I got a few things and I sat down at the table and I just looked at the square in front of me. Like just, I put my head down and I saw there was a box of tissues and I moved it closer to where I was and I waited for the meeting to start. And there was one mother who had lost her son and she was at that point a 17 year survivor. And I didn't know it at the beginning of because people were gathering. I was about 10 minutes early and people were gathering. And she, I noticed she had like a nice blouse on and her makeup was done and her hair was done. And I just thought, okay, I wonder who she lost because she's looking okay. Maybe she lost like a second cousin or something, right? I, I didn't so. know. And then I, and I saw another younger woman and I came to learn she lost a sister, 
by suicide 10 years. And she was one of the facilitators, as was this woman I was looking, and she was the mother survivor who was a facilitator of this group. And I don't really remember much from that first session, but I do remember feeling like that was the first maybe seed of hope. Like if these people have survived a number of years, maybe there was a way that I could then to survive. So it was sort of that first little, okay, I I'll, I don't know what happened during this meeting. And I apologized. And I said, I would like to be a valuable contributing member to this group. But I just, I don't know what to say right now. So I'm just going to listen if that's okay. And of course, they said that was okay. And at the end of the meeting, they did the go around the check in, are you okay to go home? And I said, I met a mother and I was hopeful to meet another mother. And I met a sister because I was worried, of course, about my surviving children. And so I said, I'm grateful for that. And they gave me their phone numbers and I went home. With that, you can call if you'd like to. And I never did. But it was that first sort of little idea of, okay, they found a way. So then maybe I can find a way. And what they were doing was amazing, I think, in the community that we live, right? I mean, there again, I went, okay, what about the people who live rurally? What about the farmers? What about the people who live in smaller centers? What about the people who are living up north? How are they going to access this support, right? So that was the first sort of, wait a second, there's still a really big gap in services. I'm finding some things for myself. There's still nothing for my children. and this isn't sitting well with me. So as I'm going through my own healing over the, well, really surviving, right? Because in those early days, it's just basic survival. And I, nothing that I went through was elegant. I struggled and I would like to say I did the best I could, but I really almost didn't survive at different points throughout the early months. I wasn't able to feed myself. I am quite tall. I'm well, not quite tall. I'm five foot eight. I'm not. That's quite tall. I think (laughs) I'm five foot two. So that's quite tall. There you go, Melissa. So (laughs) there, there you go. So I'm five foot eight. And I was about 85 pounds. At one point in my physical body started to break down. I was finding it very difficult. That was one of my biggest challenges was self care. I just could not do anything to sustain life. I felt like that was a betrayal to my son. And I just couldn't get anything past the lump in my throat. Food felt like dust in my mouth. I could not get it past that lump of emotion. And my brain was telling me, don't do anything, right? Because then you're committing to living. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that I could be separated from my child. I was terrified. And I don't think that's something that people talk about enough is how frightening it is to be separated and you're a mother and so am I to be separated from your child. And so I felt like, okay, I can maybe take one for the team, right? My surviving children have people here who will love and care for them. And Max has no one. He was too young. I can go be where he is and I can take care of him. So I won't do anything to hurt myself, but I'm not going to do anything to help myself live. I'm just going to. Sounds like such a familiar message from moms, but you're right. It's not talked about enough. It was just very difficult for my brain to think that I was going to survive this. 50% of me wanted to, because I have two children 
who are in the physical and the 50% of me needed to go be with that child who in my mind had no one. Right. And so that was just something that was too hard for my brain to process. And so connecting with other surviving parents was critical for me, finding that community and talking with them about their experience of what they went through when they first lost their child and how did they make it 17 years. I remember saying in a counseling session a couple months in, I I just, there's no way, there is no way I'm going to survive 10 years of this. And the counselor then said to me, but you won't have this for 10 years. I couldn't take a deep breath. I wasn't able to sleep. I wasn't able to eat. I was just, and I call it the pain because I don't even have any reference for what I was feeling. It was just agony, just pain, just permeating through every cell of my body. And so... I just didn't even have it. And I didn't really even care, right? Like I didn't think I deserved to feel any differently than I did. I wasn't able to save my boy. So why too then would I have hope of feeling any different than I was? I was in agony and that was correct. And I didn't have any feeling like I should feel differently or I deserve to feel any differently. That was okay with me. And I sort of equated that with, My love for Max, right? If I'm feeling this amount of pain, then that's okay because that's how much I loved him. Mm -hmm. And so I will always suffer because he will never be with me. And that is correct. And so it, it was just a really difficult thing to survive. And I thought I had that sort of niggling thought in my mind, like if I am struggling and I have all the resources to get help for myself and for my surviving children. And it's a poor time to go window shopping for counselors who are trained in traumatic loss. When you're in crisis, you've lost the brother and they have to go through, as you say, that intake, right? Where they're meeting. And I remember my daughter just getting so frustrated because they're trying, these counselors were just trying to establish rapport with her. And she said, I don't want to talk about my pet. I don't want to talk about my hamster. My brother's dead. I need help. I need tips. And she's an 11 year old little girl. And she just wanted somebody to treat her like she had lost one of the great loves of her life. Because that's what happened. It traumatically, that she had lost her brother traumatically and was suffering immensely instead of let's do all of this little soft pedaling around it. And yeah, 100%. I'm like, we went through that process, Melissa, of trying to get our family help and just sort of hitting these walls of, okay, maybe this could be a fit, maybe not. We don't know. Let's give it another session. How many times are you going to convince your child who's bereaved and struggling just to get through from day to night to go meet another counselor, to do another session? Please try. It just ended up being something that was really difficult for our family. And I just kept thinking about these people who don't have the access that we have. And so I teamed up with Anjanette Corbet, who is the mother of Max's best friend, Aiden, who grew up on the same street. And she has her master's degree in social work. And when we lost Max, 
she too then went through all those feelings of how did this happen? What could I have done differently? Right. And she was supporting Aiden, her son, through losing his best friend. Max was just had slept over at their house the night before he died. And as I said, in he our was on the game with him. The was night. on the game. Yeah. So they were as close as brothers, right? If Max wasn't over at their house, he their Aiden was over at our house, right? Like they were just two people who just went together and did everything they had. He's in a pod. They were, and they had their part-time job, their first part-time job together and, you know, learning how to drive and all these different things. And so she really went through that grief as well of losing Max and helping to support her son through this traumatic loss and feeling inadequate to do so, even though she had that training in mental health. And so we started having those conversations. I went for a walk every day. I don't know why, but I just did. I don't know what I was doing, just wandering through the fog. Sometimes my husband would just tie my shoes for me and send me out the door. Of course, he came with me many of the times, but I was walking in the neighborhood and she would always say, how are you doing? And are you finding the support you need for yourself and for my surviving children? And you know, I said, we're really struggling in this department. And I would share my experience of what we were going through. And then we started having those conversations, would this be something that we do at some point? And so when the time was correct, and we felt our kids were getting their feet back under them, and we were okay, of course, we went through all those challenges as families do as husbands and wives do we did decide, okay, this is something that we're going to do. We're going to write programs of hope and healing specifically for parents, guardians, and grandparents who have lost a child by suicide. I think that's definitely an underserviced area. The support group I went to was for all types of survivors. And there was something very valuable I learned from all of them. And I'm so grateful for those people. Even our own program does have a healing together session for all types of survivors. And there's real value in everyone coming together and sharing their experience of loss and their techniques of how they survive and how they thrive. But we did feel like it was important to design something specifically for parents, guardians, and grandparents. So we wrote a 12-week intensive program that really leaves no stone unturned. So every week, we address one complex aspect of this type of loss, and then we build on that. And so we have, we do that through a variety of projects. Some of them are guided journaling exercises. Some of them are therapeutic art projects. We do have group discussions, facilitator-led group discussions. And we have other projects as well that we do group and individual projects. So every week you're building, and this is a closed group. So you have to register for that group. And you go through the 12 weeks with the same set of people and facilitators. And so it really does expand your personal network of support, right? Because you're you build those bonds as you go together through that, that three month, three and a half month program. It's a a really beautiful option. And I know something that we want to talk about during our time together, Melissa, is the foundation of our programs, which is narrative therapy. So we did write another eight-week intensive for youth and teen survivors. So that's for 
people, any type of survivor ages 11 through 18 years who have lost a loved one by suicide. So that could be a cousin or a best friend, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a brother, a sister, anyone who is struggling with suicide loss. We really do leave no stone unturned. And we sort of, we did interview a number of young people, my own children and Anjanette's son, Aiden contributed as well to what they thought would be important to include in in those eight weeks. And so we do have that. We also have a monthly drop-in program for youth and teens. So our Healing Together branch is just, you don't have to register for that. You can come and go as need be, right? If you're thinking, oh, Christmas is coming and I need some support, you can pop into a Healing Together session. The intensives are, you do have to register for them. And of course, we need parent permission if the person is under 16 years of age or guardian, right? Parent or guardian permission if the person attending is under 16 years of age. And so we develop these programs through the lens of narrative therapy. And it's a really, it really creates a strong foundation for our programs of hope and healing. And we talked about it just as we met here earlier on before we started recording, Melissa, about the concept of narrative therapy. And many people are doing this without even realizing. And one example of what you're doing is you're writing your books because they lived and you are doing that legacy work and honoring that ever lasting and endearing connection you have with your loved one. And you're telling the story of their life rather than focusing on the way that they died. Because the reality of being an organic being is we are all going to die. And you're shifting the focus from that moment of their physical transition to honoring that life and that connection that you have with your loved one. And that's really narrative. Narrative therapy was developed by two social workers, Michael White. He was originally from Australia and David Epstein, who is a Canadian. And those two social workers came together and they sort of came up with this concept of narrative therapy, which is really a collaborative process. And it's the reauthoring of stories in our lives. And it really focuses on conversations, the hopeful, the preferred, the previously unrecognized and hidden possibilities contained within ourselves, like those unseen storylines. So it really moves away from going to a professional to solve a problem. And really collaborating with those experts in co-discovering those qualities that we all possess that maybe we've forgotten about because we are lost in the trauma. And there is a lot, there is a lot of trauma when we've lost our loved one by suicide. So we focus on those strengths that people already possess And it's really curious. So narrative therapy works for everyone because there's not sort of one set way of doing things. It asks a lot of questions and it accepts all sort of faiths and spiritual beliefs and cultural nuances. So it will adopt all those strengths that an individual already has. And then it builds sort of that that foundation 
to how is this going to work for me? Because what works for me isn't going to work for another mother, right? For myself, I did a lot of volunteering. There's some mothers who haven't left their homes in a year. And there's not one right or wrong way to survive when you've lost a child in this profound and complex way. So what works for me isn't going to work for another mother. So we have a program that is based on supporting you and meeting you where you're at. And then again, there's that sort of that research that has those well-known five stages of grief, right? That Elizabeth Kubler-Ross did that we all know does not apply when we have lost a child because there is no closure that will ever be found. I will never wake up and I'm going into year nine of losing my child. I will never wake up and say, okay, right. So that's why Max died. Oh, there's a greater reason for it. Oh, he's in a better place. There is no better place than the loving arms of his family. I can guarantee that. I I agree. And poor Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, because that was misconstrued anyway. She never intended that to be for those of us that have lost someone. That was meant to be for the dying that were in hospice and that were preparing for their own imminent natural death. It wasn't meant to be something that was... But somehow it got mistranslated and people still refer to the five stages of grief. And there's definitely still a population out there and a lot of them may be older, but it's a lot of population that still believe that you just work through this and then you're somehow done. And then you just move on. Done, right. And you move through it in an orderly fashion, like it's checkboxes, right? Done when you and I both know what it really looks like is a giant scribble all over the page. (laughs) There's no delineation to it. It's not linear. It doesn't, it's not predictable. And it's not the same for everybody, period. It's just It just isn't. And how could it be? And so, as you say, that wonderful research that she did was so valuable, but it was for the acceptance of a terminal diagnosis and not for the bereaved. And so everybody just went, oh, that makes sense. Okay, right. So you get to the anger stage and you work through that and then you go to... And then you'll never be angry about this again. You'll never, ever be angry about this again. (laughs) Which is is just not true. But to hear you talk about... All of this, I guess I I'm accidentally I accidentally have embraced narrative therapy the entire time because huh. everything you're saying is exactly what I believe. That's why I believe having powerful, hard conversations makes a difference. That's why when I was I work in the survival, hope, and healing world too. So right, you have to get past survival to get to hope and to get into healing. And those are the kind of the three three realms that I work in, because that's what I found from my own journey and from talking to meeting other mothers. But it took a number of years for me to get to the place to realize that, just like you said, we have so many different needs as human beings. So therefore, when we lose someone, we're going to have different needs. However, I have found that amongst all those different needs, there tends to be three very similar needs that do exist in all of us, which is the need, the need and the hope that we're going to find resources at the time of loss and beyond, right? The resources are hard to find. So making that easier and 
those more readily available is super important. We also have the need, which you and I both, I fought against that in the beginning too. It was really hard for me to go to my first support group. We have the need to find others that understand how we feel. And we can only do that if we find other bereaved that understand how we feel. Because I I often talk about the life-changing moment the first time I looked in the eyes of another mother who had lost her child to suicide. We didn't say anything, but there was something that was there that I knew I needed. And I didn't know it until I met her. And it was months after losing Alex. And that. And then I also have found the need for legacy. Our biggest fear as a mother is that our child's life will not be remembered, right? And so remembering our children is like that other third most common that we have in common. And then you have all the other things that we have to address, that that programs and tools and all of the things like you talk about address because that's exactly it. We have to be able to find, I always tell people when they join my support community, I say the words, I'm here to meet you where you are. I'm not here to tell you where you should be because there isn't any place that you're supposed to be at your stage. Cause they do as moms, we come in and start comparing ourselves to, we start listening. That person lost someone a year ago, that person, and we start doing the do they seem yeah. better than I am? Are, am I behind the curve? How am I not managing to look as good as they do or all the things we start comparing when really it's about, and I always tell people, finding those tools is about empowering yourself, right? I do think talk therapy has a place because we all have to have, especially in the early days, a, if you don't have it in your own network of people finding counselors is a really good way to start because we have a lot of things we got to just talk about and get out. But then talk therapy also is very past oriented, meaning we often are looking backwards in talk therapy. And what we really need as traumatic loss survivors is once we get to the place that we've talked all this out and we've thrown all the tissues on the ground and Kleenex is out of business because <laughs> we yeah, want yeah. all of them, then at some point we have to turn the other direction and look towards healing, right? We have to look towards what it's going to look like to move forward versus looking back at all the pain. And that doesn't mean, I always tell people, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying we have to fix this so you can move away from your loved one. No, you need to bring them alongside of you. Understand that you're going to live with this grief next to you forever. And you have to learn to do that successfully. And you're going to learn to move forward in your grief, not leave behind it. We have this misconceived notion, which is, I think, why we rail so hardly against it when we first are bereaved and so confused, because we think somebody's going to try to take this away from us. And especially as a mother, the last thing we need somebody to do is erase our child's existence, right? I have to learn to live with this somehow, but how am I going to do this? Well, it's building your own toolkit. It's things that resonate with you. It's all of those things. And until people understand that, they do feel stuck and lost and alone and isolated and all of those things. And so the fact that you've created this program, especially where you are in the world, you know, where you do say there's a lot of physical distance and isolation is, I mean, and in today's world, we really have a global world, right? So we can have the benefit of people connecting that are not living next door to you. And so, and especially kids that now know how to be global and use computers and things like you, I found how underserved our youth are in their grief, siblings, friends, This year on the podcast, I started hosting roundtable discussions. I have one coming up in a few weeks that's friends 
because I haven't done hardly, I haven't had a friend on. I haven't, they don't step forward because siblings often feel forgotten while friends are behind them. Friends feel like they don't even exist. Yes. And so, because they feel like if you're not in the family, but let's face it, too many of our children, those kids were every, just like you said, Aiden was, those kids were every bit as much their family as the people that lived in their home. And yet we pretend that it didn't even happen to them. And so I've had several sibling conversations. I've had dads, I've had stepdads. I've, and so now I'm really anxious to have this conversation with these friends that have lost a couple of them are my son's friends. A couple of them are friends from other people I know. The sibling discussion was so enlightening for me, Jill, that I think the friends discussion is going to be as well. And I say that from a selfish standpoint, but I know lots of other people have taken from it as well. That's the idea, right? Have these conversations and then share them so we can spread this hope that there is a way to successfully live with this and not have to hide it and pretend it doesn't exist because that how painful is that, right? And um, also create that community, right, of belonging. Yeah. So that they're 100%. not isolated in their experience of loss. That's just brilliant. I should mention too, we have a men's only group within that. a branch. So that's been a really, I mean, that's been going now eight months. It was our newest branch that we added. And one of our most popular and well-attended programs is our men's only group. And yeah, I mean, everything that you're saying is right in alignment with narrative therapy. We move away from, and I think that's the reason why our program has become so successful is that we were able to open it up online. So there's easy access. And like you were telling me, you have 50% Canadian and 50% American attendance. And for us now, we're global. So in our last program, we had people from Australia, one from Germany, and two from Ireland, in and amongst the North Americans who attended. So it has been a great way to open up and offer this form of support. But you're just right in alignment with narrative therapy, you're doing it, and you didn't even know it. It's narrative. So we move away from that traditional notion of closure. Because There is no closure. That's counterintuitive to us as parents. If my son had moved across the globe and I only got to see him once every 10 years, I wouldn't stop loving him. Right. I'm always going to love him. And I always want to honor that love. Yeah. And so to just put a stop and end point on that is unnatural and it doesn't feel correct. And it doesn't feel anything in the neighborhood of healing. So for us, we have something that's called the saying hello again concept. And we just really do learn to continue that that loving relationship we share with. And we even use present tense. We don't say loved one. We don't ever say past tense. We call them love one. So when you receive our manuals, it's not a typo. Because we want to reinforce that person is still your loved one. They are in the present tense. And so we never, ever use past tense language because that person is as important to you today as they as they ever will be because of that ever daring and lasting connection you share with them. And so we do talk a lot about the saying hello again concept within our program. And so I think that's why it works really well for people because they just think, how can I learn to as you say, I don't want to shut the door. I don't want to lose. I've already lost enough. And you have. 
and it's incredibly painful. And so for us, what we do is we sort of open up the possibility to what would that look like if you could live with your grief and joy hand in hand? Yeah. And so we sort of deal with all that. There's one session that is completely devoted to guilt and shame and those complex emotions that we experience. And we do a lot of work on that. But then as we move forward into the healing part of the program, it's all focused on learning to have a relationship with your loved one. And how does that look? And for you, there's some beautiful things happening with the books that you're creating. And this community, this wonderful online community that you've created with your podcast, and these interviews that you're doing. If Anjanette was here, she'd be jumping up and down and she would say, Melissa is the poster child for narrative therapy. And (laughs) she would say, Oh, she would just be so thrilled. And she would use you as an example as she talked to people. She would say, I met this mother and she was doing all these things. And it was the saying hello concept and it was narrative therapy and she didn't even know it. So I think intuitively, a lot of people want to do that. And you call it legacy work, right? But to us, it's just honoring that that present connection you have with Alex. He is your son. That is not going to change. And the love that you shared was not a finite thing. It is infinite. We unconditionally love our children. And this is a really test. That's a huge test when we've lost our child, especially in this traumatic way that we can't prepare for. And we've had no support on, right? We haven't had, in, in my life, my work is to support families who have a terminally ill child or a critically ill child or someone who's been injured, a young person ages like infant to 18 years. And there's a lot of support, like even from the doctors and nurses who are working with that patient, your child, and they're praying for you. And they say, oh, we hope tomorrow is going to be better. And we're rooting for you. And they do everything and beyond everything. They are exhausting themselves mentally and physically to give to that patient and hope against hope for a miracle for that child to recover. And I'll, and my role is a support person. So I will open up that window for them to communicate with me. And I'll say, how was your day? And sometimes they'll just say, fine, thank you. And sometimes they'll, they'll really open up and they need someone to chat to. And you and I didn't have that. We knew our sons were suffering and nobody was rooting for us. Often we hadn't, in my case, I hadn't even had the chance to even tell a lot of Max's extended family we were going through this. I. I believed that we were doing the correct things and we were going to support him and we were going to get him through. And there was nobody saying checking in with Max, like his teachers weren't saying, how was your day today? Can I do more for you? There was nobody showing up with hot meals saying, how was today? I know your boy's fighting for his life. Can I do grocery shopping for you? Can I go for a walk? Can I lend you my puppy for the week so that Max doesn't feel alone? But we're doing that for people whose child is struggling with a physical unwellness, whether that's an accident they've suffered, they've had a horrifically tragic accident, or they're coping with a critical illness. We support those families in that way. But people, when their child is suffering with a mental or an emotional unwellness, we're doing it on our own. 
And so there's a really big disconnect there. And so we've lost enough. We've endured enough. And so that's why I just, I love our programs of hope and healing because it really does say you don't have to lose everything. You still have them. They are still your special person. They're always going to be that great love in your life. And how can you find ways to make that fit? And how does honoring that connection work in your life? And for you, it's these incredibly beautiful ways that I have been watching and been so in awe of, just in awe of what you've been doing in this short span of time since you lost your boy and marveling at the way you're honoring Alex's life. And for some people, maybe it's in small ways. Maybe they just plant a garden and they have their son or daughter's favorite color in the flowers that they've planted. And so in some ways, it's in quiet ways. And in some ways, it's really big public ways. And in all ways, it's beautiful. And I do think that this program can work for anyone because it just welcomes all those different ideas and and it's limitless. It's just limitless. And so I think that's why we've had the success that we've had because it really embraces everyone and honors that everlasting and endearing connection we have through narrative therapy. I agree. And man, that was, you just, it was probably intentional, but I'm going to say it was unintentional. Did such a nice job at just wrapping this around, circling back around, putting a bow on it. And what I want to do as we really wind things up here is to be able to put people in touch with your programs and the beautiful work that you're doing. And so will you please tell us how we do that, Joe? So it's really easy. You can find us online. We have a lovely website at www.healingtothemax.org. I know org is maybe an old school kind of thing, but I am an old school girl and I love it. So (laughs) healingtothemax.org, easy. You can find myself, Jill Cowan, C-O-W-A-N, on Instagram and brackets healing to the max. And so we do have a wide range of people who are trained facilitators and it's really easy to find us and please do you all of our contact information is on there we have a contact form that's confidential all of our phone numbers are on there so it's really easy to get a hold of us and we'll if we if we don't pick up the phone you can get a message we'll call you right back or someone will either myself or someone else and so yeah www.healingtothemax.org I will put all of the links in the show notes so it's really easy for people to just go to the show notes and click. I will, with your permission, and you can send me the information if you're interested, put you on my resources page as well. So it's really easy for people to find you if they land on the resource page or if they land on this podcast episode. But those are two different worlds. And so I like to give people as many opportunities as they can to find all the places because what may work and resonate with one person may not work and resonate with the other. And so I had somebody once say to me, you're providing all these resources for people. And yet there's a lot of these same things that you provide yourself. Isn't that a competition? And I said, no, it's not. There is enough people in this world that need help that I want them to find the right place for them at the right time. I don't think I can be that for everybody. And I I think we all have to work hand in hand to do this together there isn't any there isn't any competition in the world of who's going to help people this is literally about 
trying to save as many of us as we possibly can and trying to help and provide the resources for as many people as we can. And man, this has been amazing and dynamic. And yet I'm still always sad and take that deep breath when I think, but yet I wish we never had the reason to do this, right? There's so much duality to the world that we live in now. But under the circumstances that that we can't change, I couldn't be more happy to have had our paths cross and to have had this conversation, Jill. Oh, well, I guess I will follow up by just saying ditto. <laughs> That will be my final word. There's so much to talk about in this world that we live in of suicide loss and bereavement and learning to successfully do this somehow, right? We got to figure it out somehow. And I'm just so thankful and look forward to hopefully having a continued connection. And I hope that we will definitely talk again soon, ma'am. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Really grateful for this time we shared today. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you. Grievers, it is my hope that from today, you will take that which serves you and simply leave the rest. I would love to connect with you. And the best way to do that is to start out on my website, where the first thing you'll find is a video recorded message from me. And then from there, you can find everything I offer, the online Zoom support groups, the books I've written, ways to connect for the podcast, and an entire resource library assembled to help all suicide loss grievers find the resources that they need to help them along their healing journey please go to theleftoverpieces.com. From there, I hope that we can connect and I hope that you too can discover that we truly are better together. If anything that you've heard in today's episode resonates with you, I would ask that you please subscribe to get notified every week of my new episodes and then take a moment to rate and review me on Apple Podcasts so that more grievers like us, can find this podcast and this community. It is from my own experience of finding myself sitting amid the leftover pieces of my own shattered heart that I can tell you that while it seems impossible in the early days, it is possible to put those pieces back together and be okay again. And every week, we'll be right here providing more comfort, hope, and community. So until next week, I'll sign off today with some words from one of my Alex's favorites, Peter Pan. Never say goodbye, because goodbye means going away, and going away means forgetting. Grievers, no one here is forgetting. Talk soon. Talk soon.